For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. My name is Spencer Walsh. Welcome to today's episode of Newsflash. Very excited because we do have a packed show for you. Of course, continuing. I say this every time. Continuing with our coverage of the war on Gaza. Because, you know, let's be honest. Is anyone, We're supposed to talk about Taylor Swift as the cover of the Time magazine. Like, you know, good for her. She deserved it. Seriously, though. Anyway. We are talking about continuing Israeli aid, or sorry, uh, Israeli bombardment, making aid efforts nearly impossible as they now move into uh, the southern city of Khan Yunus. Israeli tanks are now on the outskirts as we are just getting reports in of that as they, you know, essentially no safe place, not essentially, there is no safe place to go in Gaza at the moment. As the UN chief uh, Guterres has invoked a seldom used article to try and force the Security Council to do something. Some pretty remarkable video played in and on CNN of the freed hostages really taking it to Benjamin Netanyahu, revealing some of the anger at his government. Also reporting in Haaretz that really shocking reporting that the night before they received a very, Israeli government received a very, very firm serious warning about a possible attack yet did not call anyone at the nova festival did not call anyone to warn them at all also we're talking about aoc offered one hundred thousand dollars by apac to start the conversation she turned them down and a quick little um quick little piece of context shall we say about the uh supposedly horrific anti-Semitic Chris Salnock style protest that we saw out of Philadelphia earlier this week. Um, but yeah, uh, we do have some, you know, just general updates to get to here at the top of all things um, to do with the war on Gaza. As you know, what else is new? Palestinians across Gaza facing relentless Israeli bombardment at this point as military offensive in the south of the enclave continues as they continue now to push into by all accounts, like firmly the Khan Yunus area at this point, you know, Israeli tanks on the outskirts of the city, according to the New York Times, obviously source of information on this, not really very good, but it's just, you know, again, the best that we have to go on. The UN uh, chief, uh, Antonio Guterres, has invoked a pretty remarkable uh, situation. So, he invokes, it's called Article 99 of the UN Charter for his first time in his tenure as Secretary General. 
uh, he says, facing a severe risk of collapse of the humanitarian system in Gaza, I urge the council to help avert a humanitarian catastrophe and appeal for humanitarian ceasefire to be declared. Um, so what he is saying um, I urge the members of the Security Council to press to avert a humanitarian catastrophe. I reiterate my appeal for a humanitarian ceasefire to be declared. This is urgent. Um, so again, it seems like you know another kind of strongly worded uh, you know letter here um, in Resolution Two Seven One Two. He references of twenty twenty three. The Security Council called for the scaling up of the provision of such supplies uh, to meet the humanitarian needs of the civilian population, especially children. Um, at least 130 UNRWA colleagues have been killed by Israel. Just really, also, you know, another remarkable point that he brings up in that in that letter. But um, the Se- Secretary General may bring to the attention of the Security Council any matter which, in his opinion, may threaten uh, international peace and security. So this calls for again a resolution and a vote as a Security Council. So essentially, just saying, guys, you got to you know do another resolution on this, which is you know not the most uh, you know jaw dropping thing in the world. Uh, but it has received some pretty warm reaction from around the world, uh, with WHO Chief Tedros Ad- Adhanom Ghebreyesus, uh, Ghebreyesus, I think that's how you say his name, uh, saying, "I support Secretary General Antonio Guterres's letter to the UN Security Council, invoking Article 99 and appealing for a ceasefire. Gaza's health system is on its knees and near total collapse. We need peace for health." Pedro Sanchez weighing in, Spanish Prime Minister. Uh, Jennifer Cassidy, who's a diplomacy lecturer at Oxford. Um, was a little, it's kind of a, which one of these two is not like the others? Uh, but she said, it's essentially pushing the panic button at the UN and taking over control of the UN Security Council agenda. Um, this is an unprecedented move. It's a small ounce of hope, but you know, some hope nonetheless. And again, it's so unprecedented, but it's also the UN. So the best they can do is say, we're going to hold, you know, we're going to really make you pass a non-binding resolution this time. So again, nothing, you know, if I were in Gaza, I would be, you know, at best, you know, put, rolling my eyes and that's kind of putting it nicely. Uh, but there apparently has been a new uh, resolution circled in response to this by the UAE, the Gulf countries called for the Security Council to urgently adopt a humanitarian ceasefire resolution after the UN Chief Guterres had invoked Article 99. Um, so it seems like there will be, uh, you know, they say in this draft, draft resolution, it has the support of the Arab group and the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. So, you know, that obviously doesn't matter because the U.S. has veto power and, you know, will most likely veto that, you know, it, it really, that would be the big deal if the U.S., vetoes a ceasefire resolution out of the Security Council, but that is kind of how it stands on that front. Um, there continues to be protests and vigils held. Uh, this one at the UN headquarters uh, by Doctors Without Borders and a call for the Gaza ceasefire, remembering some of the nurses that have been killed, including Allah Al-Shawa, um, who's a, you know, was a nurse in Gaza who was killed on November the 18th. Um, you know, again, just calling for you to ceasefire. Africa Stewart, president of the board of Doctors Without Borders, spoke as a candlelight vigil in front of the UN headquarters in New York. Really just horrific, horrific stuff. Again, as we're seeing just continuing images, videos, just like almost, you know, after you've seen it, you know, just and been so powerless. The cognitive distance you have to have, um, just see that and just, you know, not become, you know, it's like, I'll be, you know, 100% real, like, you know, seeing that knowing really there's nothing I, I can do. It's just like you see another video. It's like, oh, 
you know, a, a child going through the most unimaginable suffering in the world. It's like being in such a position of, you know, privilege that I am and just being in, in, in the West, being in, you know, a relatively very good part of the West. Like it is so hard. to It's impossible to wrap your mind around the level of horror and the level of suffering that the people in Gaza are going through right now. And just, you know, just seeing it, you know, time and time again, uh, you know, just video after video popping up on, you know, the timeline or whatever. You know, you can almost you it can lose the shock value, it can lose the horror value, but it really, at least you know, and I hope for all of you as well. I know for me, uh, you know, it never really loses just the rage value, just the, the why, like on a basic human level, why is this happening to so many innocent people? And I think you know the biggest number you need to understand is that ninety three, ninety four percent number the UN put out of percentage of civilians versus percentage of Hamas militants. It's just like how many people's lives just it's un unfat we cannot if you are listening to this and you are not in gaza or at least have not gone through a analogous situation just like you will have no shot of possibly understanding what these people are going through um and it you know it really is remarkable so the eu foreign policy chief pretty interesting here uh joseph borrell has urged eu members of the un security council and other countries to support the un secretary general antonio guterres's call for a ceasefire it'll be interesting to see what hardcore zionist and head of the eu uh ursula von der Leyen has to say about that he tweeted i ask as uh, joseph borrell fontelles as the uh leader of the eu um kind of on the foreign policy side um he said I ask you, members of the U.N. Security Council and like-minded partners, to support U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres's call. The UNSC must ask, ask, act immediately to prevent a full collapse of the humanitarian situation in Gaza. So there you have it. Some pretty remarkable stuff. Um, you know, also pretty remarkable is this clip here. This is a clip of a clip Uh where, where, which in that clip will be also played a clip of a clip. I'll explain it. But anyway, Ynet is a Israeli publication that recently obtained audio of this very interesting meeting that freed hostages had with Netanyahu, and it's really you know remarkable stuff. I almost want to you know while this is playing, pull up the full article and get more details. But this is how it was discussed in CNN, and they play like a brief little snippet of what's being said and if they don't provide you know audio translations i will just you know narrate over the written translations on the video clip a recording of a meeting between uh hostages themselves and their families uh with prime minister benjamin netanyahu uh they accuse him of playing politics of priority with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family vgw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Advertising politics over freeing the hostages. They say that the intelligence services in Israel didn't have a good sense of where the hostages were being held. And they say that Israel's military campaign even endangered and wounded some of the hostages. I want to play a clip of one of the women in this meeting. She herself was a hostage with her children. They were freed, but her husband is still inside. She says that no one was doing That's anything for them, she says, and that Israeli shelling actually wounded them. Take a listen. You will return them all. They will not wait 50 days. They will not wait another year because you claim that they are strong enough. You have no information. You have no information. The fact that we were shelled, the fact that no one knew anything about where we were. Yeah, and I mean, she's got a, you know, a pretty valid, understandable point there. Because just think about it. It's like if you're in there and especially if you're out and your husband is still there, just like the psychological damage that that can do. You know, it's, it's just unimaginable, you know, talk about unimaginable. That is also, you know, really unimaginable, the fact that you are in this hellscape. And also the fact that your government, in a lot of ways, is making that hellscape worse for your family. Just, she was injured in shelling, you know, the uh, probability, just like, you know, the probability that there were, you know, rapes committed on October 7th. There was also a high probability that indiscriminate Israeli shelling also killed, uh, or at least, you know, we know it injured at least some hostages, most likely, you know, may have killed some as well. Um, but it is, you know, it's it's really, really shocking to see them, you know, kind of come out and give almost visualization, give voice to what we all knew. Because, um, yeah, it's like they have no information, like they, you know, have no information and by all available evidence they show, do not seem to really care that much about getting every single hostage back safe and sound because of their indiscriminate bombing and the fact that they have no real way, the Israeli government does, of knowing where these people are and the fact that they, again, just go in anyway, you know, is an incredibly dangerous and incredibly, you know, scary thing, undoubtedly, for anyone who's involved. Um, yeah, so they, yeah, they capture the anger. Let's see here. This is in the Ynet uh, article, uh, former captive from Kibbutz Neir Oz, who was recently released as part of the deal, said, I experienced captivity and I understand its hardships. Every day in captivity was extremely challenging. We were in tunnels, terrified that it would be not be Hamas, but Israel that would kill us. And then they would say that it was Hamas that killed us. So the thing about that, like this, the fact that this quote is not being trumpeted around as a ringing indictment of not only the Israeli government's treatment of the Palestinians, but the you know, Israeli government's treatment of, you know, even if you, you know, some, like some kind of like, you know, centrist liberals and a lot of the right wingers in America and don't find Palestinians human, you know, you probably find at least to some degree, you know, the humanity of the Israeli hostages to be something of concern. And the fact that they are now coming out, you know, obviously not, you know, it doesn't speak for everyone, but, you know, I'll throw in the usual cap, but the fact that there is a meeting where the tenor of the meeting is, you were getting us killed, and we were more worried about Hamas, or you killing us, and then turning around and say Hamas did it. 
Um, so I feel like that is an incredible quote to say you know, to to hear, and I think it's really something that when you consider the you know future uh, narrative, the future rhetoric of you know just the the, the pro Zionist side in the first place, talking about how you know Hamas you know doesn't care for the you know doesn't care for the you know I'm sure it's not you know great, but the fact that this. Like the, this dynamic of Israel putting its own hostages at risk um, because of its you know indiscriminate bombing campaign, with the effort as we have seen from Washington Post reports and others to thin out the population of Gaza as much as possible and try and get other countries to uh, take. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Them, as we have seen, you know, like the other, you know, Arab countries, Egypt, you know, et cetera, you know, that is what their goal is. They don't really give a rat's ass about the hostages. And I feel like with the, you know, I, I feel like I've been kind of saying that, kind of trying to make that case for the past few weeks now. But I feel like the hostages coming out and saying it in quotes in one of Israel's biggest newspapers, by the way, none of this will get any i'm under no illusions that any of this will get every any kind of pickup or coverage in america in kind of mainstream american media but you know i think this makes the point pretty damn clear just the idea that every day in captivity was extremely challenging we were in tunnels terrified that it would not be hamas but israel that would kill us and then they would say hamas killed you so i strongly urge that the prisoner exchange begin, begins as soon as possible and everyone needs to return home there should be no hierarchy everyone is equally in Important. Another former hostage who returned with her children, uh, but whose husband remains in Hamas captivity, said, and this was again, uh, you know, a quote of I think the woman uh, who the CNN person played earlier. Uh, you claim there's intelligence, but the reality is that we are being bombed. Um, uh, this is actually really remarkable. Okay, so this is this is literally going. This is like straight up. Only electronic Intifada is saying this stuff, and the fact is. And, you know, Haaretz, and it's not getting any pickup in the mainstream. Um, this is a direct quote from the hostage. We felt as though no one was doing anything for us. The reality is that I was in the hideout that was bombed, and we became wounded refugees. Um, so, again, same same thing with with her as well. Like, she was, she was, you know, she was injured. This doesn't even include the helicopter that fired at us on our way into Gaza. You claim there is intelligence, but the reality is that we were being bombed. My husband was separated from us three days before we returned to Israel and was taken to the tunnels. And you're talking about flooding the tunnels with seawater? You are bombing tunnel routes exactly where they are located. My daughters asked me where their father is, and I have to tell them that the bad guys still don't want to release him. Uh, which is, you know, really kind of remarkable. And you almost get the sense that she's saying, you know, putting putting the blame you know, a significant chunk of the blame. No, but I'm, I wouldn't say a majority or all the blame, but putting a significant chunk of the blame on the Israeli government and just again straight up, like you know, only like the only people that would dare in the U.S. say something like Gaza or uh, the IDF fired on and most likely killed uh, some of the people on October seventh. You know, clearly injured some as well is electronic intifada and like they would be laughed out of any other you know you would be shouted 
out of any other room if you said anything like that. But here we have the Israeli hostages coming out and saying it and saying this is what happened to us. We were concerned about dying at the hands of Israel just as much as we're concerned about dying at the hands of Hamas because of indiscriminate bombing and no care for the safety of the hostages and much more care about thinning out the population of Gaza. And, you know, that needs to be put into the analysis. That needs to be put into the general conversation and that needs to be put into, you know, just the factor, the general public, you know, factoring of the credibility of what Israel says and what all these people were hand-wringing about what Hamas did here, what Hamas did there, you know, that needs to be taken into consideration. The fact that we have our own hostages, you know, Israel's own hostages coming out, Israeli citizens coming out and confirming pretty much, you know, every electronic Indifada story that's been published since October 7th, which is remarkable, absolutely remarkable. Um, all right. We do have to move on, though. We got a lot more, more stuff to get to. Is this is a very, very interesting situation. Here's here's another one, um, which is, which is unfortunately behind a paywall on Haretz, uh, but it's okay. Uh, <laughs> see if we can take care of that real quick. Okay, looks like the paywall unfortunately is not going to work, but it does seem like we can get. You know, pretty. There's been some screenshots that have been circulating online. Um, so essentially, saying there is a growing assessment um, that, which is it's really really remarkable stuff. So it's like, okay, apparently organizers apparently planned to. So let's read this here. There's a growing assessment in the security establishment. The terrorists who carried out the massacre on October 7th did not know in advance about the Nova Festival held near Kibbutz Raim and decided to come to the place after discovering that a mass event was taking place there. Security Systems Assessment relies, among other things, on the investigations of the terrorists and the investigation of the incidents by the police, from which it appears that the terrorists intended to reach Kibbutz, Kibbutz Raim and nearly Kibbutzim, other Kibbutzim. According to a police source, um, an investigation into the incident also revealed the IDF combat hel- helicopter that arrived at the scene from Ramat David base fired at the terrorists and also apparently hit some of the revelers who were, the- were still there. Uh, apparently, yeah, no big deal though. According to the police, 364 people were killed at the festival. In addition to police sources, the party was planned to be held on Tuesday, th- sorry, Thursday and Friday. And on, keep in mind, it was Saturday morning um, that... And apparently also on Tuesday evening of the same week, it was essentially supposed to be a midweek festival, um, but the army approved the organizers of the event to hold it on Saturday as well after the request of the organizers. The change at the last minute reinforces the assessment that Hamas did not know about the incident. Um, the assessment apparently yeah, is backed up uh, by a body cam footage of a terrorist asking a captured civilian where the bad guys are. Apparently, an Israeli attack fi- helicopter fired and killed some uh, some of the bad guys, <laughs> or so some of sorry of the uh, Israeli uh, revelers as well. But the, just this also this really incredible piece of information that we're seeing coming out of Haaretz here, and it's just you know not seeming low. But this also comes as the uh, this is a later report. I think this is two separate articles here. 
of the screenshots that were online. So it's saying top defense officials held urgent consultations the night before the October 7th attack about a possible Hamas attack. But no one in the IDF notified the Nova Festival. Go So it's essentially it's like if you had uh, you know an idea and this this also speaking of 9-11, there were also apparently people that were you know massively short selling Israeli you know ETFs and things like that uh, right before October 7th. You know, it could have been anyone. Um, but, you know, this is really also remarkable stuff. It's like you, you get a night, you know, September 10th. You know, you get a warning, very specific warning about an embedding terrorist attack, and you don't call anybody, you don't do anything about it. And, you know, this is essentially what happened here. Uh, Israeli security forces apparently, according to, again, Haaretz, um, had enough warning signs to prepare, at least partially, for the possibility that terrorists would seek to infiltrate from Israel into Gaza. And they did nothing. Absolutely shocking, shocking stuff. There is no doubt about it. Um, and again, just the broader point with all this stuff is factor this in when you look at the event, when you look at, you know, the, assessing the you know capabilities and motivations of Hamas. And, you know, it is, 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 I think, a lot of the conversation obviously should be about what's going on in, in Gaza right now. And that is definitely the most pressing issue, you know, bar none, just the ongoing, you know, genocide and ethnic cleansing of an entire population out of their, you know, ancestral lands. But. Part of the justification for that is the activities that were done, the atrocities that were done by Hamas on the 7th of October. And we are finding out now just incredibly, you know, disturbing details about not only the, you know, just the nature of the attack, but also, you know, and the the IDF's conduct within said attack. But also, we are really finding out just about really just how much they were kind of forewarned as well, uh, which is, you know, really, really remarkable to see. Um, and that is on top of newly released hostages saying that they were worried for their safety uh, about, you know, about just because of the incessant indiscriminate bombing that was going on in Israel, or by Israel in Gaza with the hostages there, injuring some of the hostages, um, you know, potentially killing others uh, in the wake of the October 7th attack, of course, the bombing that we all know has been taking place on the Gaza Strip. Uh, yeah, if anyone has a new suggestion for a website about how to get get around paywalls, that will be definitely very helpful. But, um, you know, it really is, you know, remarkable, especially the way they're talking to families of the hostages as well. Just remarkable, remarkable, remarkable stuff. Um, but anyway... We got to go now to domestic politics. Big news! Big news coming out of uh, Ryan Grimm's new book. Definitely a book that I'm going to be reading over the holidays. But here's what he has to write. Uh, when the morning of July 13th, 2018, dawned, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez had been an uh, been on an unbroken streak of interview victories. The streak wouldn't last the night. When she stunned the political world by upsetting Representative Joe Crowley, the assumption was that the big story of the night was going to be the shock defeat of the next Speaker of the House. But it quickly became clear that Crowley would be the one to become a trivia question, and the real story was the rise of the politician quickly branded AOC. 
In the days after her victory, she was consistently a presence on national TV, creating viral moments that sent her rising further with each one. On Twitter, her clapbacks were feasted on by a rapidly growing social media following. Her direct-to-camera Instagram dispatches were bringing a rawness to politics that kept young people that young people were craving. She was just hitting homer after homer and kept doing these interviews and just blowing it out of the park, said Soikut Chakrabadi, who helped run her campaign and would go on to become her chief of staff for a time. And every time she would do one, we'd get bigger and bigger people asking her to come on. And then at some point, all the late night shows were asking to have her, but then they have this all have this weird competition thing where you can't be on one and then also be in the other. They get really mad about it, uh, which is kind of funny. Uh, but still, the total overpopularity was about to hit its limit. A mistake we made early on is we did not do enough to figure out how to keep AOC from not getting exhausted. It's incredible she didn't have a nervous breakdown. I was thinking about that, going from just you know a normal you know bartender to being a member of Congress and being you know an overnight celebrity is just insane for anyone. In the middle of, de- of July, the stress finally caught up to Ocasio Cortez, and she did the unthinkable, taking on questions about Israel Palestine unprepared. Corbin Trent, uh, her communication director, and I taking the blame there, put her in a bit of a vulnerable position on a topic that really wasn't her thing. She was on PBS's firing line, and I do remember this. I remember like, oh no, here we go. You know, just like, this is this is when it's starting to get serious. Um, where she essentially goes in the interview and she's asked a question, and it's really kind of a stupid, you know, question, you know, from the perspective of somebody who, you know, knows the issue and, you know, has, you know, followed it for some time. And, you know, at that time, you know, I was, you know, very uninformed of the issue and not trying to put anything on AOC for doing that. You know, you shouldn't have to be an expert to be on Israel-Palestine to be a representative of Congress. But this is in response to, you know, what she posted in May of 2018. And the you know great march of return when Israeli forces continue to kill unarmed protesters in Gaza, um, she said no state or entity is involved of mass shootings of protesters. There is no justification. Palestinian people deserve basic human dignity. Um, she asked, "What's your position on?" It's the interviewer, Margaret Hoover. Um, What's your position on Israel? She said, "Well, I absolutely believe in Israel's right to exist." She began supporting that she uh, adding that she supported a two state solution and said, you know, through you know through her lens of the activist, which I think was a very good way of framing it. She said, I think if 60 people were killed in Ferguson, Missouri, if 60 people were killed in the South Bronx unarmed, if 60 people were killed in Puerto Rico, I just look at that incident more through just as an incident. And as an incident, it would be completely unacceptable if it happened on our shores, which is honestly was what I saw and that kind of thinking. It was honestly what spurred me to start following this conflict in the closest way that, you know, the closest way that I did. Uh, But obviously, I was an overnight celebrity and in Congress at the time. Uh, So it's a really tough situation. So uh, it was kind of, yeah, unusual terrain for a politician just to equate the lives and dignity of Palestinians with others around the world um, was, yeah, unusual terrain. Of course, Hoover cut in. The dynamic there in terms of geopolitics and the war in the Middle East, and it's just throwing out these buzzwords, buzzwords to make it sound, you know, make that really well-articulated basic truth by AOC sound so complex, sound so, like, scary, right? This idea of, like, um, this idea of, like, oh, no, uh, you know, this is a, a lot of geopolitics and complicated situations. It's like, no, 60 unarmed protesters were shot. That is bad no matter where you go. Uh, AOC paused and she took a deep breath. The First Amendment might not legally cover unarmed Palestinian protesters, but it certainly did from a moral perspective. Um, 
so she's saying, yeah, so it's like, it's, this is the Hoover quote there. She said, the dynamic in terms of geopolitics and the war in the Middle East is very different than people expressing their First Amendment right to protest, she said. Um, I said of course, you know, just come on, let's, let's be reasonable here. Um, now she starts to get, you know, be visibly nervous. Um, and she makes a pretty good point that it's like, yeah. It's a moral thing. You know, just don't shoot unarmed people who are protesting, she says. But I think what people are starting to see, at least in the occupation of Palestine, is an increasing crisis of humanitarian condition. And that, to me, is where I tend to come from on this issue. She responded visibly nervous. She used the term, the occupation of Palestine, who were pressed, leaning forward. What did you mean by that? From one perspective, it, of course, could mean the entire state of Israel was the illegitimate occupation of the nation that is truly Palestine. This was ruled out by AOC's initial assertion of her support of Israel's right to exist. From another perspective, though, it could really merely refer to the actual occupation of Palestinian territory that is recognized as illegal by international law. But Ocasio-Cortez was, by that point, kind of like a fish out of water, uh, saying, oh, I think that what I mean is the settlements that are increasing in some some of the areas, which is right about that, in the places where Palestinians are experiencing difficulty in access to their housing and homes, she said, clearly suggesting she was referring to the latter definition. Hoover wanted more. She said, do you think you can expand on that? But then she tapped out. <laughs> uh, I'm not really an expert on the geopolitics of the issues, she said, laughing at herself. I just look at things through a human rights lens, and I may not use the right words. I know this is a very intense issue. I come from the South Bronx. I come from Puerto Rican background. And Middle Eastern politics was not exactly at my kitchen table every night. But I also recognize this is an extremely important issues. From there, her team decided to take a break um, with the whole, you know, the interviews there. Um, this was the first time she had a bit of confidence, a bit of a confidence hit because she didn't do incredible in an interview. Um, after the firing line interview, she was slammed from all directions, from the left from, for being too soft on the occupation, from the right of attacking Israel, and from all sides of the cardinal sin of admitting to not knowing about something, which is also very, very true when you think about it. Uh, but anyway, at a week later, she was at this um, rally for this guy named Brent Welder, who was doing a Justice Democrat-style, squad-style uh, flip uh, but while yeah, while there, she got a lesson on how things typically work in national politics. Corbin Trent, her communications director, got a call from a man saying he represented donors to the organization APAC, or the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. They told him that there was $100,000 ready to be handed over to Ocasio-Cortez to, quote, start the conversation with the organization uh, more with much more than that to come. So essentially a $100,000 bribe to, you know, start the conversation, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, which is really, again, incredible stuff. It's attempting to to bribe, uh, you know, of course the campaign was flushed with cash at the time and it was rejected out of hand. Um, <laughs> it's like, and Trent goes, uh, Corbin Trent, this is the communication director of AOC at the time, she said, or he said, um, this was basically a bag filled with cash. I was expecting the corruption to be much more subtle. Um, so Daniel Moran's confirmed Ryan Graham's reporting on this, uh, saying the implication that that was uh, that her position could be repaired with conversations that her positions were based on a lack of information and a lack of proximity to enough of a variety of people. Uh, Trent recalled, APAC denied the offer to Huff Post, but Moran's recalls. Uh, offers an interesting and I think correct interpretation. Before APAC started to make real political action committee for the 2022 elections, is that feasible an affiliated mega donor or major bundler could have gone to AOC with a policy paper and an offer and never told APAC itself? 
flush with cash facing no serious general election opponent. The offer, though, was not seriously considered. So again, does go to, you know, AOC's credit, but also like we need to, I think, be more aware as Americans that this lobby is fundamentally, you know, scaring the pants off of mostly, you know, Democratic politicians. You know, they are changing their positions on this. You know, we talked about how John Fetterman had, you know, a meeting where he took that offer very, very seriously. And we can see the results of that now. Um, But also there's two people who have come out, I think it was like Harper Hill and this other guy who are trying to run for the Michigan Senate right now and said they were offered, you know, like tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars to run against Rashid Tlaib in the primary. Um, And it was, you know, it was really, really, you know, it's it's kind of shocking but not surprising uh, that it would be, you know, that blatant. But again, talk about adding against the conversation. Boy, do we need to get, you know, this needs to be added to the discourse. There is this lobby out there that is just straight up paying people money to agree with them and to advocate them for them on a very powerful level. All right. We got to go now to our next story and our last story. Uh, Sophie Hamilton uh, was one of the people who worked at the Goldie restaurant in Philadelphia. I don't know if you remember seeing that on the news recently as a target apparently of supposedly horrific, you know, uh, just Crystal Knox style anti-Jewish business protests and really, really awful stuff. You know, I saw that I was I was honestly, you know, I was a little taken aback. I was like, this is not you know, a smart strategy, you know, this should not be, uh, you know, protesting just a Jewish business, and, like, this seems like you know, incredibly unproductive things to do, you know, especially if that person isn't kind of, like, upholding or, you know, funding or, you know, in any way helping or, you know, supporting Zionism openly in any way, um, and I think, you know, even still, you know, I think targeting a single restaurant is, you know, never the most effective protest strategy. But, you know, it was really made to seem like it was a direct attempt to target a Jewish business just because they were Jewish for no other reason than that, which is obviously anti-Semitic at the very least and fucked up, uh, you know, no matter which way you slice it. Uh, But that's why I was so surprised to hear this from Sophie Hamilton, who is a store manager in at this this Goldie restaurant in Philadelphia. Uh, I'm Sophie. I live in Philly, and I used to work at Goldie. I was fired in the middle of November. This is before these protests happened. With Palestine, and also for refusing to discipline a coworker for doing the same by wearing a Palestine flag pin. I worked there for more than two years. Um, I started out as a front of house worker hourly. And over my years there, I worked up to being one of the store managers. Uh, over that time, I only got positive feedback, really. I never been disciplined, never had any issues like that. Um, that was until I started dissenting from the company's silence about the genocide in Gaza. I felt compelled to speak up against the company while I still worked there because they held a big fundraiser raising more than $100,000 for this group called United Hatzla of Israel. They presented it to us as nonpartisan, non-military aligned, just an EMS group like the Red Cross. Um, but I did a little bit of research just looking on their own webpage and on their Instagram and very quickly found they proudly provide supplies and aid to the IDF, which 
I thought was unacceptable and wasn't something that I could be a part of. So. Again, so this is not somebody who is, you know, clearly not somebody who I think, you know, is, a, you know, raving, you know, frothing about the anti-Semite and also not a institution or a store that was in any way, you know, neutral about this and just trying to, you know, go about their business and, you know, which is objectively, you know, incredibly tough times to be a, you know, Jewish person. And, you know, also, by the way, you know, a Muslim, openly, you know, kind of visibly Muslim person in this country, um, you know, and just going about their businesses, you know, a Jewish owned business, and they were just being, you know, protested and harassed. You know, this is a store that is openly supporting something that for a lot of people is incredibly evil. And especially the people that, you know, worked there. And not only were they openly supporting it and, you know, calling for, you know, donations for this United Hatzvala group, um, but they were also, you know, disciplining people in their store who objected it, you know. And, you know, people may be like, oh, you know, that's the right to do as a store, you know, but also in America with First Amendment right, that is the right to protest. You know, very, very important, um, you know, I think context and you know, a much needed corrective, especially as the, you know, really alarming and I would say alarmist rhetoric about, you know, the Holocaust has come to America in the form of, you know, certain, you know, aggressive and, you know, sometimes even, you know, ill-advised, uh, but, you know, not genocidal or, you know, superbly violently threatening to the Jewish people. Um, you know, it that is, that is a reality that, you know, you got to put into its appropriate context, not just for, you know, the integrity of the Palestinian movement, but also for, you know, not making Jewish people around this country feel like everyone around them is out to get them unjustifiably. All right. With that being said, we will be back on Friday.